Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's a Sunday afternoon. And uh, I'm going to see if I can do the first of these for this week. Today's Bible podcast is being sponsored by the Casorlas in um, Florida and in uh, Boca. Uh, Yosef Casorla, a good friend listener, says he wants to sponsor, uh, sponsor in honor of two nice things. One, in honor of the father-in-law. That's just good politics. Always sponsor in honor of your father-in-law, whose name is Dr. Michael Eliff. And also... Um, and this is uh, <laughs> more organic. Uh, they're also having a bas mitzvah in the family. And so he said, can you also mention my daughter Ariana Sara's bar mitzvah? So that'd be Mazel Tov to Ariana Sara Kasurla. Well, that's the spiding name <laughs> they've ever heard of. It. And because uh, Rabbi Kasurla is a Sephardic, the real thing, this Friday Tahor from Spain, as far as I'm aware, three told me, so, um, I figure I'll put, I'll do something about this Friday. I've been doing some unconventional figures lately, and I was just going through my mind what came up, and an unconventional Sephardic figure from the past um, occurred to me, and I said, I'll go with the heck with it, well, let's run with it. And so I'm going to introduce you today to someone I'm sure most of you never even heard existed, uh, and that's a... Uh, Isaac Orobio de Castro from the 17th century. Here I have like a spinoff or another variation of what I did about a month ago of Elio Montalto, Dr. Montalto. And here's the world of the Moranos, the Conversos, the New Christians, the Portuguese, and call them all kind of different names, and the world of yesteryear. This is not a big rabbi, someone has a different um, biographical trajectory. So the hero's name, the final name he took, but when he became, when he's fully Jewish, was Yitzhakarobia de Castro. Um, don't be surprised by these Spanish-sounding names. What happened was that all these people converted. So when they converted, or their ancestors converted, they took the name of noblemen uh, who sponsored their baptism. So that's why you have Jews with with fancy names. That doesn't mean that they're fancy at all. Anyway, our hero lived in the 1600s. I think the years of 1617 to 1687, which would mean he died when he was 70 years old, just to give you an idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Somebody lives to the age of 70. And um, is born as all these guys are in Portugal. Now, uh, I've said so many times the story of Portuguese Jews, I don't think I have to repeat myself. There were the Jews who ran away from Spain in 1492, and then they went to Portugal, promised they went up to convert, and then they were forcibly converted, etc., etc., etc. Point being... There was that chalik of the Spanish Jews who ran away to Portugal, we call the Portuguese Jews, and from their ranks came the Frumis. Now, that doesn't mean they all were. Most of them became Catholic, and they were scared to death by the Inquisition. I don't blame them a bit. And, you know, they just went along and became Catholics. So everybody knows, when you go to Portugal today, you know, a lot of them are really Jewish if you want to go back by the bloodlines, you know, by the ancestry. But, um, as a matter of fact, somebody sent me a movie the other day, 
about Captain Barris Bastro. Somebody made a movie about a guy in the 20th century tried to restore Judaism to the sense of these Muranos. Uh, but in our case, it's going to have a little bit of a different trajectory. So now listen closely. <clears throat> the Jews that I'm talking about ran away from Spain in 1492 to Portugal, were forcibly converted in 1497, tried to wiggle out of it or, or do different state live double lives for the next 40 years until 1536. And then in 1536, in Portugal, they introduced the Inquisition, and then you're screwed because it's a snitch system. So after 1536, it got really tough to be Jewish secretly in Portugal. A lot of people got burned, tortured, and so forth. A lot of people, a lot of Jews ran away. Uh, I don't blame them. <clears throat> and this is the world we're talking about. But there's a twist on this. I hate to get too technical, but you'll listen. Portugal and Spain are two countries in the same peninsula. In the 1500s, <clears throat> Spain was formed by uniting Castile and Aragon and Navarre into one country under one king, the Habsburg dynasty. But Portugal was a separate country. However, Later in the 1500s, the king of Spain, Philip II, married the princess of Portugal, and because the male relatives died, see, he tied that his wife is the heiress to Portugal, and he conquered, he overran the country, this in 1580, under the Duke of Alba, famous general. <clears throat> now, that means that from next 60 years, the next 60 years, um, Spain and Portugal ruled by the same king, but they had two different identities. <clears throat> My granddaughter just interrupted me. Anyway, uh, so Portugal and Spain had the same kings, Philip II, Philip III, and Philip IV. And, um, however, Philip II was wise enough to say, all right, I'm the king of Portugal, but Portugal will be run by Portuguese. All the ministers and the officials and everybody be Portuguese. So it's like one king, but with two different administrations. And that's the way... Portuguese wanted it. They wanted to retain their own national identity. Subsequently, the Spanish tried to impose their own Spanish guys in Portugal, and that led to a rebellion, and Portugal eventually broke away. The period we're talking about, when our hero broke, was born in 1617, Portugal was ruled by the same king as Spain. Now, the Spanish had a terrible economy. Uh, I won't say it's all because they kicked out the Jews, but that was a piece of it. And in 1620, when our hero was like three years old, so the Prime Minister of Spain, uh, the Conde Duque de Olivares, a very famous person, Count Duke, uh, he seriously was considering letting the Jews back in because the economy was so bad. Isn't that amazing? But it didn't happen in the end because the anti-Jewish feeling was stronger than the economic feeling. You understand? As we would say today, the heart was stronger than the mind. In terms of the mind, they said, let the Jews in and uh, they'll build up the economy. But they said, it took us forever to get rid of the Jews. Hell with it, we don't want them back. And so that's what happened. On the other hand, Olivares was aware that there are a lot of people in Portugal who are officially Christian, but are Jewish by roots and still have a lot of Jewish mannerisms in them. In other words, you're Portuguese Jews. And they include a lot of merchants and business people. So they only live in Spain. They live in Portugal ever since they were kicked out of Spain. But they ended up converting the Catholic in Portugal. And 
Many of them are well accomplished in business and as well as college grads. And so I don't want to let back into Spain Jewish Jews, but I do want to attract back into Spain Christian Jews. Do you get it? And so he said, the Conte Duke of Olivares said, all right, the, I want the Portuguese Jews, I'm inviting, I'm giving you tax incentives to move back to Spain and maybe you'll jiggle up the economy over here. And that's what happened. So after 1620, um, a fair amount of Jews of Portuguese origin, which means they were in Spain and they went to Portugal and all that, moved back to Spain in completely new identity. And with the idea that by living in Spain, they'll help the Spanish economy. Uh, and that's what happened with the family of our hero. They're one of the many Portuguese families that moved to Spain. Now, it wasn't any different in terms of Inquisition. Both places stunk. But here's somebody born in, in Portugal. Very common, what I'm saying. Sasportis was like this. And they moved to Spain. Even though their ancestors, way back, back were talking Spain. But they're coming in as Catholics, and they better mind their business. Now, our hero, they moved to Seville. And uh, he went the academic route. He studied philosophy at the famous uh, universities there, Alcala de Henares. And uh, eventually... Uh, he became a professor of philosophy, actually. So he had a PhD, literally, a doctor of metaphysics at the University of Salamanca. The University of Salamanca, I can only tell you, was like Harvard. Uh, and then, as many Jews did, they said, no, you know, so he went for medicine. Uh, and uh, I know it sounds funny what I'm going to say. <clears throat> I said it before. In those days, medicine was a branch of philosophy, even though that makes no sense whatsoever today. But it did according to the thinking of that time, the old Aristotelian curriculum. And he actually became uh, a very successful um, MD, as was true of many Jews. So people knew he's from Jewish ancestry, but he's a Catholic. But secretly, he was Jewish. Now, I don't understand this exactly, because he married a guy. That's my understanding. And it's most unusual, because they used to say the Moranos all marry each other. But as far as I'm aware, his wife was not Jewish. I'm pretty sure about that. And uh, that actually, came, in my opinion, which is all I ever give you, that I think saved his life in the end. Because he was now in Seville, in Spain. Beautiful city, I've been there. <clears throat> Very pretty city. And uh, he has a, a, a successful practice. Secretly, he's Jewish. Already when he was in college. Right? In university. There were other guys like him. They had secret Jew club. Obviously, nobody's supposed to know about it. And in that secret Jewish club, they had, you know, arguments about Judaism and Christianity, all this kind of stuff. He had a friend who we'll meet later in life, Juan de Prado, who, like him, is uh, from the Moranos. Notice publicly they're Christians, secretly Jewish. But Juan de Prado was already, even at that time, you know, holding... Uh, what shall I say, heretical views from the point of Judaism. Uh, and this guy, our hero, Isaac Arobia de Castro, is saying, what are you doing? You're like an apocyrus. And they're having fights, arguments in their club, which has to meet secretly. So this is fantastic. Here you are in Spain, <laughs> middle of the 17th century, <clears throat> in a super Catholic university. If you burp anything Jewish, you all get burned. You have a secret Jewish society, which itself is extremely dangerous. If one guy cracks, they all get killed. And when they have their get-togethers, whatever they do, 
they're fighting over when, whether one guy's a Pecurus or not. <laughs> it's not enough just to hold on to Judaism. That is the fascinating world of these Jews who took, who took religion very seriously in a way that we don't. Very seriously. And questions about God and providence and heaven and hell and this and the other. They mamish took seriously. And they had arguments over it. and I mean, intellectual arguments and things like that. I won't give you all the details. Now, our hero, ironically, the, the champion of Frumkite married a guy. And see, see, you can't you can't go by rules. You understand? These Moranos, they lived by their own rules. And he had a career. As far as he's concerned, they get a little bit all of his life in Seville. Well to do, upper class, uh, MD to big big machers. I think the prime minister or something like that was his uh, uh you know uh, what do you call it, patient. You know, he had A level list. He's doing very well. Now, on the other hand, it's not possible. Now, I, I'll tell you again. I don't know how this could be done. And you can make movies about it. And I'm sure you'll see soon in Netflix and one of these things, Orobio de Castro. They'll make a miniseries about this guy. His wife wasn't Jewish. His kids are not Jewish. But they obviously, they must have known that he's Jewish. And they must have agreed to go along with him in some way or another. I mean, it had to be. And, you know, see, so he's living a double life. And um, and I r repeat, he had been such a bucky in philosophy that he was a professor of metaphysics at the University of Salamanca, like we'd say today, professor at Harvard. So he was a high macher in philosophical thinking. He just went into medicine for Pernosa. So what happened was that he accused one of his servants of Geneva. The servant says, oh, you're going to screw me? I'm going to get you. And he said, went to the Inquisition. He said, this guy's really Jewish. Oh, boy. So, no, see, that's what life was like in those days. You couldn't say nothing to the employee. They could get you in trouble. I want to tell you something. Derek Agav happens to be, right now, I am learning my, my mother's yard site coming up in Thomas, beginning of Thomas, uh, same day as the Lubavitch Rebbe. And so I'm doing tomorrow, what do you call it, uh, um, Yerushalmi Sanhedrin. That's what I'm doing. And it just happened to see yesterday, Derek Agav, the fifth paragraph in Chaf Zion, I think, that um, a story where some chos, uh, some rabbi, uh, you know, an Amora, Tan Amora, goes upstairs, uh, uh, you know, upstairs above the basement, and she's two guys carrying on gay. Gay. And they see him caught in the act, and they say, you better shut up or we'll get you in trouble more. Because you're one and we're two. So we can be eight against you, you can't be him against us. And he shut up. So I'm just telling you, life is like that. And the result was that um, this guy got him in trouble. He's arrested by the Inquisition. A bummer and a half. They torture him for three years. You hear what I said? See, so he went through hell on earth. They torture him for three years. In other words, ice medical practice, ice family, ice everything. This is the fate of these Jews in those uh, centuries, if you live as, as, as a converse on Murano in Spain and Portugal, you could be at the top of the world and then all of a sudden it all collapses. Literally all collapses. And that's what happened to him. So he should have kept his mouth shut. Now he's saying anything about the Geneva. But everybody's smart in, in hindsight. Now, listen very closely. He, had a, he survived. Otherwise, there'd be nothing to talk about. 
I wouldn't be doing this podcast. Who survives three years of torture in a, nar- a dark and, and narrow dungeon in terrible health conditions, you know, uh, um, where they, and the, and the Inquisition was the experts in torture. Ad Hayom the KGB and these other guys, they learn, I'm serious about this, it's not funny. They learn Hilka's torture from the Inquisition. If you go online and Google Inquisition tortures, you can see pictures that were made hundreds of years ago of all the different stick they do to you if you have a strong stomach. Right? And I, but remember, this guy was a philosopher and a, and a, and a uh, MD. See, he knew the Spanish law and culture cold. He was a super bucky and all the geisha stuff. And he knew Hilke's Inquisition. And he knew his only chance not to get killed is to com- to c- never confess. And if they're torturing them, it means they don't have aid him. You understand? Because if they had witnesses, they wouldn't bother with the torture. they just burn them. So he kept that in mind. And obviously, you know, when they torture you, you want to say whatever it says to stop the torture. So you have to have mind over matter. You hear what I'm saying? You have to keep the big picture in, in mind to say, no matter how much it hurts me, no matter how much exquisite torture I'm going through, um, I'm not going to confess because that'll be the end. Right? So he went through three years. Now, if I remember correctly, he was circumcised. I think there's arguments among the historians about this and so forth. I can't imagine his, his family was so crazy to do that. But I seem to recall that what he called that he would, that, you know, that, that's what happened to him. And so um, he was able, I don't, there's the old history stuff on this guy. And then there's the new stuff that's come out in the last 20, 25 years. And I knew the old stuff better than the new, even though I knew some of the new. And it used to be that they said he held out for three years and didn't confess. The new scholarship seems to indicate to me that he did, but was able to talk his way out of it or something like that. If that's true, right, then I, I attribute it to the fact that he married a guy, which was true under Hitler as well. I don't know if you know this. Those who married the Christian ladies, many of them were not killed by Hitler. Now, I think had he won the war, eventually he would have done it. But Lamaisi didn't do it. There was a, a point where the Geisha wives made, you won't believe this, made a protest rally in Berlin, I think in 1944, and Hitler backed down. It's a funny story. You go look it up, you'll see. And so, whatever the case is, I believe... Um, uh, and, and, you know, the Inquisition used hearsay testimony, said he didn't have them. You understand? And the end of the story is that he was able to avoid getting killed. And um, I think what they do, they say like this. Look, you win. We want to cut a, a plea bargain with you. And I told you, the Inquisition is very complicated. And people had to know was Tutsuch. And only somebody with a thorough Gaish education who really knew all the laws, cold, could operate successfully in this environment. And so after three years where he wouldn't confess, they basically said like this, you know, the Inquisition has rules. You know, they, they did. And they're bound by their own crazy rules. Now, they didn't want to say they made a mistake. That'd be a busyness. Keep somebody for three years. All that happened all the time. And so I think 
what happened was they said, listen, can't prove anything. We'll cut you a, uh, we'll cut a deal. Uh, and we'll keep it. You give us a confession that you were living as a Jew. We will not kill you. Uh, we'll banish you for like two years. You'll have to wear a, they call it San Bieto, have to wear like a dunce cap to show I was a secret Jew. No, you have to go public humiliation. But only for a year or two. And then, you know, frankly, leave the country because uh, you're a cause of embarrassment to us as well as to yourself. And that's what he did. He's one of the very few people that survived the, the, the uh, Inquisition system. Although, you know, you talk about PTSD, whatever they call the post-traumatic. I don't know how the guy survived. Three years in a little dungeon, maybe the size of your body. I mean, what they, and, and the, they, they, oh, the, the psychological and physical tortures. I don't know how the guy did it, right? But he left with, so for two, he got out. For two years, he had to walk around with this dunce cap and things like that. But the dunce cap and the garb meant, I'm a chayzeh b'tshuva, the Catholic. You understand? I'm a chayzeh b'tshuva. Now I can tell you right now, everybody could see, everybody knew this is a, a plea bargain. Because it was the real thing, they'd burn him. First they'd roast him and toast him, and they'd burn him. And so he went through his two years. And this was, you know, when he's in his 30s. And then he got the heck out of there. They told him, get out of the country. And he went to France, the next country over. Now, he had a very good education. When he came to Toulouse, in the south of France, in the 1660s, I think. Let's see, something like that, a little earlier. And, um... That time, Louis XIV is the king of uh, France. He wants to build up the French colleges, universities. Here's a guy who, for whatever reason, had an excellent education in Spain, and if he, he could be put to good use over here. He became a, a, a medical professor at the University of Toulouse. So um, that's amazing. You know, let's put it this way: he's like the guy in the Gemara, you know, in Aesop's Fables, who said, "I stuck my head inside the lion." And, I, and I'm a to get, and I can boast that I've taken my head out of the line without being eaten. He was into Inquisition and got out. It's unbelievable. And so he went there. Now, at this point, from a certain point of view, and I mentioned this when I did Montalto, it's a Ghanaian. Why? You're in France. There is no Inquisition in France. It is a Catholic country. And Jews are not allowed to live there. Not in the time of Louis XIV. Legally, the Jews are not allowed to live there. On the other hand, there's no Inquisition. So if I secretly want to keep Judaism, I can do it if I'm just discreet enough. If I have a room where, where the maid doesn't go into, and I get a pair of fill and, and a sitter, I can do it. Whereas in Spain, you know, they're always sneaking on you, snitching on you, investigating you. So it's possible to live a much easier life let me rephrase it, a much easier double life in France than in Spain. And it's a Canadian. You see? You want to keep Pesach the right time? And you want to eat matzah and stay away from comments? You can do it. You want to keep to yourself on Friday nights and Saturdays? You can do it. You want to have your wife light candles and stuff like that? You can do it. Now, um, you know, as long as you're discreet. So that's what he did for a while. But his conscience was pecking away at him because the guy was a philosopher. He was a, a, a former philosophy professor. 
See, he's a real thinker, not like you and I. Someone really thinks through life things. And uh, basically, the anomaly of his own situation got to him. What's the shot? In Spain, okay, so you're Anus, Anusim. But outside of Spain, you're not Anusim. See, there's nothing preventing you from going to a country where you can not live a double life, but simply come out of the closet and say, I give up the Christian stuff totally, and I can live a full Jewish life in public and raise my family that way, all the rest of it. That's what I should do. So the course of action they took originally, which many did, which as I said before, from the Marano point of view, was a Ghanaian, right? To live in a country like France at that time, or earlier in England, or many other places, where it's possible to live a double life without the Inquisition being on top of you, why should you be a Catholic and fake out going to, to church if that's not what you believe? Why can't you be a whole from Jew, if you wish, and go to a place where there's a shul, and you live openly and publicly, and your life's not a double life? Now, this didn't happen overnight. He worked his way to it, little by little. And so I'm dealing now with a very unusual person. After all that torture by the Inquisition, and after he was such a frummy in the uh, secret of the college club before, I mean, it's a person with a great deal, he's a brainiac, you understand? Now, he's not a Talmud Chacham, he doesn't know how to learn, how would he? All that is true. You know, that, all that is true. But look what a, a, a unusual and stark person this was. <laughs> As I said, after a while, you know what it's like? I'll give you, a, it's not the, exactly the same thing, but it's something like the same thing. Somebody's living in America, and they say, well, I'm not living in Israel for this reason and the other reason. Certain people will say like this, after a while, what am I living in America for? I'll, just, I'll go to Israel and just live 100% in Israel. You understand? I don't like this business of of, of, of living a, a, a double life. There are Jews that move, in other words, there are American Jews who move to Israel just because they feel it's the right thing to do. Not because everybody's forcing them. That's my point. Right? Not because, you know, and uh, the end of the story is that he leaves his job, which was a good job, and he even got a medal from the king and stuff like that, uh, in the medical school in Toulouse. He could have spent his life there and lived a double life. And he moved to Amsterdam in the 1660s. Right around the time of Shabtai Tzvi episode. Right? And he came to Amsterdam with his family. His wife was not Jewish. Children not Jewish. How luckily. Now, culturally, I don't know what you call it. They're Jewish. But how luckily you're not Jewish. And he come to Amsterdam and he ain't the first and he wasn't the last. And when he comes there, he goes to the synagogue and he's like this. I want to make a public confession of Judaism. In other words, I'm now renouncing. My name is so-and-so. Until today, I've been this. And now I'm totally cutting off my connection with Christianity. It's not what I believe in. I want to publicly come out as a Jew. And I'm joining this community. Uh, and he meant it. Okay? Now, uh, you think that was a dramatic scene? In my son, in the 1600s, Things like this happen all the time. I told you before, in Amsterdam, people will get off the boat. He could be a priest, <laughs> even a bishop sometimes, a general, a colonel, a government minister, etc. They would come out and they say, in Spanish, of course, <laughs> or Portuguese. Now, um, so that means that this guy lived for the next uh, 20 years or so till he died. So from the age of, let's say, roughly 50 to 70, basically. 
his 50s and his 60s, in Amsterdam. Here was a brand new shocking experience. Amsterdam, you actually had something called religious freedom. This you didn't have anywhere else. Especially for a Jew, Amsterdam was like unique. Um, England was beginning to begin to let the Jews back at this time. But in Amsterdam, you already had them for a whole bunch of reasons. And the Dutch let it be. And you had this community, the, the, the uh, Sephardic community, which is the Portuguese community. And then there was Ashkenazim there, separate, two separate Kehos. Now, um, these guys, you know, were, were able to publicly declare themselves Jewish, meaning they could say, yesterday I was a Christian, now I'm not a Christian, I'm a Jew. And the Dutch were okay with it. They let, them ha- let it happen. Fortunately for a guy like this, you say, what do you do for a Parnassah? Well, he has MD. One of the reasons Jews throughout history learn to get a medical degree is it's like a diaspora proof. You understand? They can take away your money. They can take away your books. They can burn your house down. But if you have the medical knowledge in your head, you can go to somewhere else and get recertified and start again. Get it? That's one of the reasons throughout history Jews have gone for medicine. And you can, you, know, you can always survive misfortune and go back to being a doctor. That's exactly what he did. And he became, a, I would say, a um, uh, successful MD by the medicine of that time. I told you before, he had been at the top of his profession in Spain. So, you know, now he's in Holland. He's still at the top of his profession. And Gamarno. So he was able to spend the last 20 years of his life in this regard uh, as a Jew. His wife and children obviously had to convert. They did. Okay? Now, he regarded them as Jewish. And they regarded themselves as Jewish. But they were 100% willing to have the bris and everything else if that's what's necessary. Here comes the interesting historical significance of Orobio de Castro, Isaac Orobio de Castro. <laughs> when he came to Spain, uh, to Amsterdam, so as they said, the whole community was chock full of these type of, of, of people. Now, um, many Jews, many Moranos, when they escaped from Spain and Portugal and ended up in Amsterdam, where you could see full 100% Judaism in practice, when they said, okay, what's the Jewish religion all about? They're like shocked because they didn't know about the Tarsha Alpeh and the million and one uh, rules of Halacha and the Shulchan Aruch. I mean, all these words were just unknown to them. Talmud, the word Talmud was unknown to them. They just didn't know. And go tell somebody there's a thing called Tefillin. <laughs> I think I told you the story. I have a guy in my show who said when he was growing up, in, uh, when he was living in another city, uh, a, a beach, uh, uh, an Atlantic City type situation. I won't go into details. And um, he was becoming interested in religion, and uh, but not his wife and children. And his his son, he's in a different place now. His young son, he saw him put on tefillin. He thought the father was a Satan worshiper. <laughs> you get it? You know, <laughs> here you are in some kind of completely gush environment, the guy's putting these black boxes on the head, It's a, it looks like a Satan worship. And it's only when the son came to Baltimore and saw a shoal, and so everybody's wearing this, he's, oh, he felt a relief, you know. So what you and I take for granted, you understand? Uh, you know, it's filling talus, a davening in a certain way, things that we just part and parcel of our life. We're brand new and something radically different to people brought up differently. Now, um, a lot of Jews said, okay, um, if this is it, this is, this is it. I'll try to learn it. 
And a lot of the Jews were turned off, especially people with education. Because take a guy like I'm describing, who was not like this. He's, he, you know, he's a guy who had a, an elite education, like we would say today, the best degrees from Harvard and Yale, and a successful medical practice. Why should he go and, and, and sit with some uh, guy who's much inferior to him to teach him, as we would say today, kids of Shokhanar or something like that, you know? I mean, it's a business. Unless the person has a very um, humble and um, at the same time self-confident attitude and say, listen, I don't know. This guy knows. And therefore, I'm going to, uh, you know, accept what he tells me. Many didn't and were turned off. And what I'm trying to get across is when they moved to a Jewish community, a firm community, they became déclassé. They used to be members of the elite in their country. But in a Jewish community like Amsterdam, the fact that you're a Bucky and Catholic doctrine doesn't get you anywhere. And uh, what, what what made you high class in one place doesn't is worth, worthless in the other place. If you knew Gomorrah, it might be something, but how would you learn that back in Spain? He himself... In the course of his career, especially in the later years, wrote dozens of books trying to be Makarov, his fellow Moranos, using the flowery language of that era. And he himself, this is very famous, I always remember this part, uh, when he was writing against another guy, Juan Prado, when he was writing against another guy who was uh, a, a, a heretical in his opinion, he was Makhalik, and he said that there are different types of Jews out there, meaning us Portuguese Jews, and he said, there's one group who use all their, I'm quoting from the Spanish, who use all their will in loving the divine law, and they try as much as the strength of their understanding reaches to learn what is necessary in order to observe conscientiously its sacred teachings, laws, and ceremonies, which due to captivity itself, they and their ancestors forgot. Yeah, knows. I have to learn olive base from somebody. I have to learn whether Krishna goes before Shimon Esri the other way around from a kid. Why? Because we we Jews have been deprived by the Catholics of our own knowledge. They listen humbly, he says, to those who, having been raised in Judaism and learned the law, are able to explain it. So that's him. He's a top intellectual, but he comes here and he says, I want to go out of the closet, I want to be Jewish. I don't know anything, meaning he knew the high philosophy stuff, but I don't know, you know, what, what, like what we call today, Kitzur Shulchanar. I don't know Chumash and Rashi. And somebody, I get, I get a guy, you know, uh, like you say today, Shiva guy to teach this to me. Now you find this nowadays in America, right? You have a guy, in every Yeshiva you have this, there's a guy, there's just some Stam Yeshiva guy, they hook him up with some Baal Shuba, and the guy could be an accomplished doctor, an accomplished professor, this and the other. And in secular terms, the professor blows away the yeshiva guy, but he's coming humbly to learn from the yeshiva guy, you know, how to make a laning or something like that in Mishnahis. It's interesting, and that's what Arabi de Castro was describing. On the other hand, he goes on to say, there are those Moranos, conversos, who um, are different. Uh, they reach Amsterdam uh, equally ignorant of Judaism, but they are conceited due to their knowledge of secular sciences. And as he says, once they begin to learn about their ancestral faith, I'm sorry, their ancestral faith, 
Vanity and pride do not allow them to receive education in order to come away from ignorance. It seems to them that they fall from esteem as learned men if they allow themselves to be taught by those who truly are learned in the holy law. They feign great knowledge in order to contradict what they do not understand, even though all be true, all holy, and all divine. So the arrogance of a person who says, me, with my madrego, I'm not going to take this stuff off some guy who's who's less wealthy than me, less uh, secularly learned than me, just because he knows it's Judaism, and therefore what you say, the whole Judaism is a crock. You understand? In other words, this got in the way of them being able to absorb and be machnia, that's the key word, to, to, to learn the new religion, what to them is the new religion, and their pride and their other feelings block it, and they say, you know, I can't, I can't do this. And as a result, these types uh, said, we want to do Judaism our way. And a lot of the things that you guys are teaching us today make no sense. And the basic philosophy that we find in the Talmud and the Old Testament is not logical, not by the standards of the 17th century. And just as we were in Spain and we said, you don't have to believe in Yoshka to be saved, I don't think you have to believe in Moses either to be saved, as they would put it. And they came with all these ideas, which you can totally understand. And I'll tell you again, in the world of Kirib, the world of Bali Chua, there's a lot of, what shall I say, uh, I'm not sure how to phrase this. A person has to be quite humble in order to say, listen, uh, I don't know about this stuff, and I have to learn, and if it doesn't make sense to me, I have to be a couple. Uh, that goes against the person's training and educational thinking, right? Against your upbringing. Your upbringing is to use your mind and reason to work everything out till it makes sense to you. What if you do with chukim, which they don't make sense, right? The chazal themselves say they don't make sense, let alone things in Judaism which we claim make sense, but to an outsider it may not make sense. You know, whatever. And so the result was that he found himself in Amsterdam in a fascinating place in this Jewish community, in which new people are showing up all the time, but the new people are finding different re-entry experiences, can I use that term, into Judaism. Some positive, some negative. Some of the people are coming and say, listen, I want to return to my roots. This is mine. I don't know the first thing about it. And so I don't mind being taught by a 17-year-old kid. Right? And and if they tell me that Rashi says this and this happened and that and that happened and there was a nascent miracle, even though as an educated guy, I ordinarily wouldn't believe in miracles and things like that, but if, they, if you say so, I'm a cobble, right? In other words, it's a certain submission and, and hakna, uh, and others not. And indeed, this was exactly the time when the left-wingers were creating a whole tumult in the community of Amsterdam, especially his old buddy, Juan Prado, with whom he had argued about whether the guy was an apicorus back in medical school in Spain. This guy had a similar story, ran away from Portugal, from Spain, in a different way, and ended up in Amsterdam too, before our hero. But when he came there, he said, this Ju if this Judaism is baloney, he was more or less a deist. And they put him in Kherim. And when he was there, the community put him in Kherim. And when he was there... He made chaburas of his ideas, you know, with guys.
to his ideas. This is Spinoza. Spinoza was one of the Talmudim. And Spinoza, of course, Benedict Spinoza also ended up being Uh I'm not a philosopher. It's not my training. I'm a historian. And I've always had trouble understanding Spinoza, uh, who didn't... I don't even talk about it because I don't want to say something dumb. I have an idea about it, but I, 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 I'm, I'm fam- sufficiently familiar to know that I don't really know it well. I have friends who are the world's experts in the subject, uh, Professor Muhammad here. Uh, but suffice it to say that these guys, like Pareto and Spinoza and some others, published all kind of writings and things like this to spread their ideas. This would be like different groups you have now on the internet. You know what I mean? It's a free world, so everybody's publishing whatever they want. The Portuguese community were not intellectuals. They were businessmen and employees of businessmen. <clears throat> Get that straight. The uh, Portuguese fancy, rich community in which all these guys were living at the time I'm talking about, including zillionaires and shmillionaires, Jews, who they or their parents ran away from Catholic and found religious freedom in Holland. But Holland was a major center of business and they rode that wave. And a lot of these guys did good investments and stuff like that. I won't go into details. And they made fortunes. And so when you came to Amsterdam, not only did you come to a place where um, you had religious freedom, which was a shock coming from Spain and Portugal, but you also went to a shoal. It could be sitting next to a guy who's a zillionaire, which never happened in churches and other places where there's a much greater social stratification. You understand? But some of these richy riches in Amsterdam were mega wealthy. Um, they're not prof- uh, philosophers. They the, the reason they put uh, you know uh, Spinoza, these other guys at Harem is uh, don't rock the boat, don't offend the Christians, don't come up with Michigan ideas. Just shut up and, and be happy that you're Jewish. You get to practice your religion and freedom. You want to have your own ideas? Keep your ideas to yourself. But these guys wouldn't do it. And my point is that uh, the arguments of Spinoza, and he was a genius, obviously. He wouldn't be such a big deal in, in the history of philosophy, the Mechadish of modern secularism. Uh, they couldn't answer his tainas. You understand? And there were many Protestants and, and the Dutch and others who held from him. That's why they protected him. And, you know, in his writings, he, he never criticized Christianity, but he often criticized Judaism and Kisader. Uh, although, maybe Professor Malam wouldn't agree with me with that. But anyway, uh, and uh, it's not like there was a debate going on in the Jewish community. Well, but our hero said like this, I'm not a richy rich zillionaire. I'm an educated intellectual. I can it for him for him. And he wrote all these books and treatises I think this is uh, where you get a lot of information from in Spanish, arguing on Spinoza and Prado and all the others in the, all these deep philosophical ways. Now, again, I'll say it again. I'm not a philosopher. Um, and, I mean, I can understand it, but a lot of it, it, it doesn't appeal to me. There's a very, very, There are many books on this. Uh, there's a nice article by Seymour Feldman, at least in my mind, which you know, sort of summarize the, um, as he calls it, Habikurus Hayhudis Arishana Neged Spinoza, the first criticism, Jewish criticism, Judaic criticism of Spinoza. And you see that this world-famous philosopher, our hero took him on, and um, they argue on all these arcane kind of theological topics, which Jews don't usually get into. Uh, sometimes they do, but very little. 
And you know, does God, uh, what, are the, what are the attributes of Torium? And, you know, is creation and time and divine will? Is that a function of God? Things that are usually beyond the scope of most people. But he was a trained philosopher. I told you before, he had been a professor and he could have had a big career as a professor in a real university in Spain, in Salamanca, which was the foremost university. Um, and so let's put it this way. This guy was the Fermi spokesman for the last, in, the, in his 50s and 60s. He also, so no, and what I mean is, he took on Zachlech. He has philosophical arguments uh, against all what he would call the heretics. So the community can't answer, but this guy can, because he, not because he's a doctor, but because he was trained in philosophy. You see, he was very brilliant. Um, and you see that he was a person who said, and I remember the, there was a guy, Brandenburg, who was a pro-Spinoza guy, and he said, listen, there are two truths, you know, that's an old line. There's the truth of the of the public and the truth behind the doors. And, you know, he has a thing. He said, truth is truth and fake is fake. False is false. And I don't want to hear this double truth business. And, you know, he really, I mean, a, I'm not doing justice to the subject. What I'm doing is I'm letting you know this stuff exists. If there's anybody out there, I can't be many, among the listeners, that you're into philosophy, especially early modern philosophy, and you're interested in Spinoza anyway, you look up a Roby de Castro, do some homework, you'll see some very, very interesting things. As someone who is highly intelligent coming from a from Jewish standpoint, but he wasn't a regular from Jew, <laughs> right? If he'd been born a regular from Jew, he wouldn't be able to answer any of this stuff, okay? Because he would have no background in it. He would have been a yeshiva or something like that, or a businessman. Uh, but the profile that I'm describing uh, is solid. By the way, he had his opinions on Christianity, and although the Jewish community used to say nobody should get in debates with anybody could get us all in trouble, in Holland and Amsterdam in the 1600s, the Protestants were fascinated with Judaism. They didn't like it, but they're fascinated with it from a Calvinist perspective, and they wanted to engage Jews in conversations. The way you see sometimes some Christians do, not many, but some, uh, usually the Jewish community was very scared of this, and they said, don't get involved, because you could do the wrong thing or say the wrong thing and get the whole community in trouble. And there's truth to that, right? But I would say exception was made for him because everybody understood he's different, Orobia de Castro, and he's highly educated, and he doesn't do dumb things. He won't say anything that makes us get into trouble. You understand? You know, him you can rely on. Everybody else should just shut up. And uh, he engaged in very interesting correspondence and even a public disputation with, uh, what was it, Lambark or something, some famous Dutch Protestant guy. Um, I want to tell you something. It was a public disputation, I think, in the university. And here you see something very interesting about the Jews. Throughout our history, especially when they lived in Europe in these terrible conditions, you always had a, a reality in which, in the physical sense, the Jew has to be machnia. They simply had no choice. So wherever they do, wherever they live, the Jews had to be very humble very obsequious and very submissive and things like it's necessary. To use the old-fashioned language, Yaakov had to bow down to Esau. <clears throat> That's a fact. He, to survive, he had to bow down to Esau. <clears throat> However, I think of Dessler or somebody said like this, physically he bowed down to Esau. Don't think that mentally Yaakov bowed down to Esau. When he found under circumstances that it was necessary to bow down to Esau, so Yaakov did what he had to do. But he didn't admire Esau. He didn't say, well, I want to learn from Esau. <clears throat> you get what I'm saying? So there's what you call external bowing 
and it's internal bowing. So take, for example, there's an old theme and a new theme. Achana Am wrote about it when he wrote a famous essay called Avdus Betocheris. Uh, here we are in America, USA today. Uh, there's physical uh, freedom, but for many Jews, it's, um, they're bound to Asa mentally. You know, because they take whatever culture tells you is correct, that's what they follow. If the culture tells you it's not correct, then they don't follow. That's Rove American Jewry is like that. Uh, here I'm talking about, but in the in, in the time of our ancestors, you had the bowing down days of, but not mentally. And throughout the Middle Ages, um, whenever Jews were confronted questions about religion, uh, if they if if they were allowed to, they would give a proud and strong defense of their position. You understand? Know uh, they didn't back off. Um, it wasn't always like that, you know. Notice, uh, but very often it was because the Christians genuinely wanted to hear what the Jews had to say. That doesn't mean that they persuaded the Christians, but they want to hear what they had to say. So our hero uh, had a, a, a famous uh, disputation with a leading Protestant clergyman, and if I remember correctly, one of the people there was John Locke from England, and I think this had hashpa on John Locke's writing his famous essay on toleration. Which influenced Thomas Jefferson and the others, which allows us to live in a free country today. So it's a little bit of historical reductionism, but what the heck? It's it's kind of nice to think that Arabia de Castro, to John Locke, to uh, Thomas Jefferson, to uh, Baltimore, Maryland today is is interesting. But you you do have this line again. If anybody's interested in pursuing it, what's the history of the doctrine of toleration um, as a shita? Um, and it goes back you know to John Locke writing his essay of toleration and his, uh, what was it, his constitution for the new colony of South Carolina, uh, in which basically they say like this, a Jew should be allowed to believe whatever he wants. The law shouldn't punish him for it. Yeah? So should a Muslim. This was radical. Right? A from Jew would never have come up with a line like that. But uh, the uh, the courageous and very dignified presentation and defense of Judaism by Arobi de Castro was a big kiddush Hashem. And it impressed everybody. And uh, it's one of the reasons that Judaism had whatever little degree of respect it had uh, from Christian Europe, especially from the Protestants. This was a time of the, what they called the Christian Hebraists, when there were certain Christian um, intellectuals that wanted to find out more about Judaism, usually to undermine it, but not always. <clears throat> not always. And the result of all this was that he became a very distinguished figure in the Murano world. This was their own little diaspora in which they kept in connection with each other because they held themselves different from the other Jews. There was some truth to that. Uh, this is a community, as I've said on other occasions, where the guy is from, he goes to shul every day, puts on filling, keeps kosher, all the rest of it, but he dresses not in a Hasidic garb or Eastern European garb, like what's that? He dresses just like a Christian. He speaks Spanish and Portuguese and eventually Dutch and English. Don't speak no Yiddish, no Ladino. Ladino is for Casorla, you know, the ones they were running away from Spain and went to the to the Turkish Empire. You understand? I'm talking about these are d different type. They're thoroughly Europeanized. They're thoroughly modernized. There's a painting of them. I don't know if it's an accurate painting. He looks like a t t you know like a typical um, what do you call it? A typical uh, 17th century um, what shall I say? Um, Christian intellectual. Matter of fact, they painted him with armor on. I'm sure he didn't wear no armor. So you know how they do those paintings. Uh, like in the uh, carnival, you know, you stick your head in, the body's already there, you know. Uh, 
But the fact they put him in there goes to show you he's a European. Okay, he's a European. So he's defending Judaism from a Europeanist perspective. A guy like him could do it, but remember, he paid his dues. Look what he went through with the Inquisition. He paid his dues. And the result is okay, he was able, because he had creds with the non-Jewish world, he was able to have creds with the Jewish world. Now, what do I mean when I say with the Jewish world? The Portuguese Jews like him were in their own little bubble. They kept in contact with the other similar Portuguese communities, uh, what they call La Nacion. It was Amsterdam and uh, a couple other places in Holland. There was Hamburg, London, Bordeaux, Livorno, uh, you know, a few cities near the Spanish border, uh, where they used to run away San Sebastian and places like that. And this was their own little universe. You get it? Um, in many places, they were not so from. Because living in small communities, and anyway, being very European by dress and style, wasn't so easy to keep the kids on the derrick. But in Amsterdam, at least in the 17th century, they had better luck. Uh, wasn't posh there either, but they had better luck. Plus, you also have the physical image that, um, what shall I say, every day people are getting off the boat and embracing Judaism. You know, even if you think your community is not special, if you see a Spanish general come and show up in Shul and say, you know, and I came here to get, I gave everything up, my family, my castle, my army in Spain to be Jewish, then, you know, if you're a teenager, it makes an impression on you. You say, gee, my religion must be something important. You, you see what I'm saying? And I remember he wrote um, uh, treatises and, uh, you know, contrasim, uh, uh, as we say, to the other Muranos saying like this, do not, don't do what you're all doing, which is living in Christian countries a double life. Don't think, as I used to think, that the Canadian is to live in a Catholic or Christian country, but just there's no, um, there's no uh, Inquisition. That's not the right thing to do. The right thing to do is move to a Jewish area and totally embrace Judaism the way I did. And don't be ashamed of it and be willing to be makrov if necessary, to make the sacrifices for your religion and uh, strive to be a good Jew, but in a wholesome way, so you don't have a double and split personality. And I can't tell you how controversial this was in the Murano world, because a lot of people say like this, I like to have a foot in both camps. You never know the way things will turn out. <laughs> you know, maybe one day I'll have to run away somewhere and I'll need my Christian identity. So he's saying, you know, do this for principle. Did he have it, Hashbo and the others? Obviously he did, but I won't say that he made it, that all the Jews who were in these other countries, you know, uh, moved to Amsterdam or places like that. On the other hand, um, the political circumstances of Europe during his lifetime began to shift slowly, and it became possible legally for Jews living in those countries to acknowledge being Jewish, not because they were heroic, but because the local governments like kind of reconciled themselves to that. And, for example, in, Sp in France, these Portuguese Jews who really were always treated as Christians and were officially Christian and went to church, at a certain point, in the time of King Louis XIV, who was very anti-Semitic, but Louis XIV was, at least in this occasion, willing to let his heart run his mind. I said it backwards. Let his mind run his heart. 
Now, when he came to the Protestants, he didn't do that. And he did the revocation of Nantes, and he tortured the Huguenots, and he talked to screw the French economy. He hurt his own country by his Catholic bigotry against the Protestants. He did not do it against the Jews, who were very tiny in number. And instead, what happened was, over the course of his reign, very slowly, it became just simply understood that these guys are really Jewish and they can come out of the closet and have their own synagogue and all this kind of stuff, provided they keep a very low profile religiously, which they did, and provided that these guys are making important contributions to the economy, which they were. So this combination of economic benefit and very slight liberalism, the John Locke effect, very little of that, um, helped to create a situation in which the old way, which was around for so much of the lifetime of Orobi de Castro, which was living a double life in these countries, which simply didn't have inquisitions, that little by little gave way. And it became possible to be a Jew and be and live a, a successful life, economically successful life, Jewish successful life, in France, in Holland, of course, in England, and in different places in Germany, um, and in Livorno. Um, there were many other countries where you couldn't. But it became possible to have like this network of, uh, uh, of places. And uh, the truth is, the Christians themselves, if they weren't in Spain and Portugal and hooked to that Meshuggan Inquisition, they preferred to say like this, Halonuato Lucerino, you know, stop carrying on this double business. Just just tell us what team are you on. Are you in the Orioles or the Yankees? We just want to be clear about this. We're not going to hurt you if you're in the Orioles, but, you know, just be clear about it. So, uh, you know, are you black or white? And uh, all this, therefore, led to the happening of something which in his lifetime he tried to make and he couldn't necessarily persuade them all, but the political change in Europe uh, affected that, that um, uh, the Jews were able to come out and, 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 and declare themselves Jewish. The problem then was, you know, how do you keep your children, grandchildren, the others Jewish if you're rich? How do you keep them from marrying out and, uh, you know, not going off to Derek? That's a completely different story. And that's a completely different set of challenges. But our hero lived in the 17th century when those were not the challenges. The challenges were how to sort out your own personal identity and say, you know, uh, look, you're, the, the, the Jews had a mountain tour in the time of Shavuos, and I had a mountain tour last week when I arrived in Amsterdam or Hamburg or wherever it is. And uh, I'm, I'm willing to stand up and say, Nasa Manishma. Okay? When the Jews said it at Harsinai, they got positive results. These people were afraid when they see Nasser and Ishmael, they'll get punished. They'll get negative results. But Arobi de Castro was the big champion of the one who said, guess, just do the right thing. And so uh, there's a, a, a Sephardi from a different time in a different place. And once again, it's a happy Bas Mitzvah de Casorlas. And uh, with that, I wish you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.